In this episode of Stages, we speak with Michael Norman. Upon meeting Michael, you can do nothing but be engaged. His exuberant personality leaps at you large, and his passion for showbiz is palpable. The son of performers, he entered the business working in television props, and along the way served a stint as a model in the UK, ultimately returning to Australia to assume a career as a company manager on the big commercial shows, plays and musicals that tour the country and abroad. He's been called old school and adored by all who have worked with him. Company management is a job for a people person, someone who can represent the producer's interest while attending to the day-to-day personnel matters of all on board a big show. Michael does both with ease, ensuring that if you know Michael's managing the show, you're in good hands. We commenced by discussing his forthcoming trip to Norfolk Island. Norfolk yeah. Island, always wanted to go there. Colleen McCulloch, seeing her house on Wednesday morning, always wanted to uh, check it out. She would never allow anybody into her house while she was alive, and as soon as she passed on, um, it's now open to the public. All right. So it's um, a national trust or something? Ish. I don't it's think it's a national trust. I think it's, just, it's part of the, on the tourist she, you know, I don't know if she's bequeathed the house to, to the uh, tourist industry. But, you know, you can go there and you pay a fee and you can go and see how the... Um well, they're going to do that with Patrick White's house at, on Centennial Park, I think, but they didn't. So that's great. But I suppose she was sort of a, a key personality on Norfolk Island. Mm. So they... International celebrity. Yeah, so they celebrate that. Like if you went over there. Absolutely. Um, do, you, do you know anyone over there? or you, No. Nah. You're just going by yourself? Yeah. Fantastic, because you've always wanted to go there. Yeah. Excellent. It's on the bucket shot list of things I want to do. The bucket shot list? Yeah. Well, the, you don't have a bucket list. You have a bucket shot bucket list. Bucket shot list, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Michael Norman, you're, you're the, the child. Are you an only child? What do you have God, siblings? No, two older brothers. I'm right. the baby. Right. Sport brat. The children of parents who um, had a, a, a well a lifetime in show business. Did you did you grow up being surrounded by all, every all day the... of my life? And what was that like? Sometimes a bit too much because I'd come home from school and there there would be my mother uh, doing the the lead character of um, Glass Menagerie. So of course we'd have to deal with because um, she was in rehearsal or something. Yeah. yeah. And she'd be practicing her lines over the kitchen sink. And all of a sudden we get this huge southern drow. And you had to cope with that, you know. It, it, it just became normality, I guess. It, well, Did you think that's how all of your friends at school, they all had lives like this? Or that, oh, no, that, that you recognised you are a bit different? I certainly didn't in many ways, really. <laughs> how many other people wear frocks to school? So, so mum was an actress? Yes. Yeah. A musical theatre actress or straight plays? Straight plays, Oh, okay, great. And she, what, what was, so where was she born? Was she Australian? Melbourne, yep. Yeah, grew up in yep. Melbourne. Grew up in Melbourne, educated in Melbourne from a very, uh, what do you call it, uh, strict family that had very, she went out with the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, uh, Maury Nathan, and destined to marry him as a, as a you know, go out with the Lord Mayor of Melbourne. Uh, yep. He was the Lord Mayor of Melbourne then, but. Uh, her parents, my grandparents, had actually really plotted a, a, a very good career and um, social contact point for her. And um, she went to see Charles Norman in a, in a show, and she said, "I'm going to marry that man." And she thinks she was 14 or 15. And four years later, they eloped to Sydney and got married. 
So did that... Sp- and her name is Patricia Henry. Henry. Mm. That was her stage name and real yep. name? Yep. Yeah. Um, so was it your dad that sort of sparked the interest in performing for her? Um, I think it was already there. Right. My mother had a very deep voice, even as a young... Oh, actually, she didn't have that... Six Rothmans a day gave her the deep voice. But she... Um, I just recently heard, and I forgot to bring the CD with me, of Mum on the Shell Show in 1947, two years before I was born. So it was a radio show? Yeah. Yep. And it was when I think Mum and Dad were going across to Adelaide and Dad was going to be in The High Women. And um, Mum sounds like the Queen. He says, all talking things out, wouldn't you? Because everybody did. They had English accent in order to be, um, in order to be employed in their stairs. Well, yes, well, we were certainly influenced by the mother country, weren't we? Oh, yeah. ABC radio announcers and, yes. and, and even ABC News, our actors. Or, uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You had to be very British to, invo- to be employed. So what sort of, sort of work... Obviously, it's a period of, of no training institutions in Australia, so performers were learning on the job. Absolutely. Where, what sort of work did she get sort of to, to she kick She worked off? for the Little Theatre. Um, one of her best mates is Ray Lawler. And that whole sort of, they all grew up together at the same time. And I think that was a huge influence on her and part of her madness and our, her outgoing nature and the style of play that she chose to do. But mind you, I wasn't even born then. This is, you know, years before right I was up. even thought of So she's working with Ray Lawler at the Little yeah. Theatre in, in Melbourne. Melbourne. What suburb was that in? South Yarra. South Yarra. Uh, and that was his launching pad for Summer of the 17th Doll and. Yeah. And all that sort of thing. That wasn't the theatre that Frank Thring worked at, was it? I think it might have been. Little theatre for a while? Yeah. Yeah, they all got together. So, Don't um, forget, this is 100 years before I was born, so I'm a little rusty, rusty with on those details. And then we never discussed work and theatre at home because it was just a normal family unit. And I was discouraged from involving myself in it because I had to focus on a, on a, on a school background you know, and, and a career, nothing to do with theatre. So did they shield you from oh, show yeah. business a lot? Yeah. That was their work and... Correct. And of course I was this budding little sort of determined actor at six, I think. And I hated the fact I had to go to school because I was going to be, you know, fabulous film star. Oh, okay. so you were bitten by the bug as well. Oh, God, It yeah. was certainly... What about your well, brothers? My older brother, definitely. He did sort of amateur stuff, still does a bit of amateur stuff. And the other one, no. He's going to be a golfer. Gary Norman, can you believe that? <laughs> I think, yes, it's already been taken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so did you get to perform at all yourself, I suppose, in school, yeah, school productions and things? And, oh, you did? Um, Do when some I was movie. a kid, mm-hmm. yeah. As a child actor? Yes. Yeah. And then... The, the Smiley, was it? Uh, do you know, I can't remember the name <laughs> of the thing. So many years ago, I did a couple of things. Uh, Six Characters in Search of an Author was one thing I did for uh, the ABC in Melbourne. And that, I would have been 13. I had to get special... Uh, is a dispensation from from the school from equity oh, in okay. order to appear because I, I was under you know, I would only start uh, employing people from the age of fourteen and I was thirteen and a half or something. So yes, yeah, so my parents had a huge influence on me, and I was bitten by the bug. But they went right. That's stopping until you get a solid education behind you, and then you can you know, pursue what you want to do. Um, so did you work for J C Williamson's? Do I have that right? Because no, Dad did. Dad worked for Williamson. Yeah. So, so where did she get a lot of her work from? From the commercial producers of the time were Garnet Carroll. I think or? it was yes, definitely Carrolls. Absolutely, because yeah. that was they were great mates. Kitty and, and Garnet were great friends of Mum and Dad's, and uh, they'd always go to their place in 
domain road for the opening night parties and um, and Lady Viola Tate I think wrote the intro to Dad's book yes when, it was a uh, very, when Vaudeville was king it was a very small closed little network in Melbourne don't forget how many years ago that would have been so yeah um, so so what were some of the highlights of her career of mum's career what sort of roles Having me? did she do <laughs> well of course that goes without saying <laughs> and Gary Norman and, and, and Tony Norman Tony Norman yeah. Charles Anthony as he was then called um, highlights of her career Glass Menagerie would have been one of them uh, I can't think of any of the others to be absolutely honest yeah. but, but uh, she continued to perform to what age oh Right up to a dying day. Yeah, she never came off stage when she was in bed. And, and you say, you know, she remained a showgirl to the end, and, and loved being oh god, yeah. part of your world because well, because all, all her friends had all carked it. So Mum attached herself to all mine, and it used to drive me crazy in the, in the days before mobile phones because the phone would ring when I was home from England, and um, the phone would ring, and Mum would pounce on it, and then three quarters of an hour later, say, "It's for you, darling." <laughs> and that way, I got really annoyed. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a little awkward. So we, we we got to this arrangement where I'd have my own phone and she had her own phone as well. So. Right. Now your father, Charles Norman, mm-hmm. he immigrated to Australia just after World War One. Before. I before. Uh, Nineteen. He was born in nineteen hundred and two, although he kept that the most closely guarded secret for well for sixty years until I stumbled across his old passport because I had to apply for my British residency and get a British passport. And, I mean, there it was, you know, lying in the bottom of a trunk. Because we never knew how old the old man was. So um, he came out to Oz with the family, they came to Sydney. Um, it would have been my grandfather's... Yeah, my grandfather I never met. He was a plasterer. Cockney he was a plasterer, plasterer correct. But they all went to Melbourne first, just reminding myself, to Box Hill. And because my dad loved horses, and they bought this huge house. How they could afford it, I have no idea. Um, and I remember as a kid going to see this old place. Uh, it had about eight bedrooms, a, a fairly grand mansion, with all the surrounding um, fields where they could have the horses, because Dad loved riding horses. So that would have been about 1908 I think maybe a little later when was the first world war 42 45 first world war oh um, uh, 1912 yeah 12 to 18 16 people listening are going to think we're complete fuckwits because we don't know Um, but we did we don't we've got the decade right correct so um, they came out as as, as the, the war was about to escalate into full-blown war um, and went to Box Hill, got the house and then the other members of the family came up to Sydney and Dad loved Melbourne so much as a teenager he stayed there and started his career but then he kept going back to the UK to do shows in his mid-teens to early 20s. Um, he was a comedian and singer who took advantage of his long and loose legs, it's said in mm-hmm. the... Um, <laughs> that, could <go> that could be interpreted... Uh, so he's a tall man? Six foot three. And of, about 187. Yep. And obviously very um, rubbery legs. Supple. 
supple legs, which um, he used a great, great Frank advantage Van, in humour. Fra- Frank Van Stratton sent me a link of Dad doing a routine with his then partner. Um, oh God, isn't it awful? My brain's just not working properly. Um, Chick Arnold. Was it Chick Arnold? Mm-hmm. That was his big long-time partner. They had a break for a while. Correct. And then met up, more about my dad than I do. <laughs> met up again in the UK and repaired that, um, that bus stuff. Yeah, yeah. And continued. Book. Yeah, absolutely. And then they worked for Harry Clay. Um, no, in Australia, but um, they used what they'd learned with Mr Clay to tour uh, the UK circuit. circuit. Yeah. 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 Um, Frank Van Stratton, we should say, of course, is the... Um, the magnificent historian and archivist in, who was at the Victorian Arts Centre Performing Arts Museum. Correct. Yeah. Great, great friend of Mum and Dad. In fact, he uh, did one of two eulogies at Mum's funeral, which was very was eye-opening for me because there's a whole load of stuff I didn't know about Mum. As I said earlier, that we never discussed work and careers and stuff. It was because it was just a normal family unit. You never talk about your own history when you're having, you know, roast chook on a Sunday. So, so one of the big produce, commercial producers at the time around the vaudeville circuit was Harry Clay, and, mm-hmm. and that's where your dad got one of his first big breaks, yep. touring around Sydney and the, the New South Wales circuits. Um, and and it was Brisbane, too. And, and the Brisbane as well. It was very much on-the-job learning, though, wasn't it, for performers imagine. of that time? Yep. Um, he says in his book, and we should talk about when, when vaudeville was king, but it's not, not in um, print anymore, is it? Unfortunately not, no. Uh, um, clay audiences were clay audiences, they were exactly that. They knew the business. You had to please them. They knew a lot about it, and you couldn't kid them. Any act or acts that didn't have much talent, well, they woke up to that pretty quickly. No, they wanted the best, and they demanded the best, let me tell you. So some pretty tough audiences oh, on yeah. the vaudeville circuit, and they would let you know they didn't mind. Mum and Dad used in. to say that Melbourne used to have the toughest audience because they'd sit on their hands waiting to be entertained, and if you got them, they would applaud. But Melbourne always was the toughest audience to... I still remember as a kid, Mum and Dad, saying that, that that was their challenge. Whereas Brisbane... I mean, Mum and Dad, we used to go to Brisbane, it was very redneckville. I don't think they ever had anything thrown at them, like, you know, cabbages or uh, bad fruit. But it was a very tough audience too. But they loved it. They would support theatre in those days. Well, your present occupation allows you to... Uh, be exposed to audiences around the country. I've never exposed myself to an audience <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Keep up to date with the latest guests on stages by following us on Instagram at Stages Podcast Pete or like our Facebook page, Stages. There you'll be able to see the faces of those I've chatted with and some further background information. Hear guests like Tony Lamont talk about the time that she was offered the chance to be the first female host of a Tonight Show in the world. So they decided to give me the Monday night and the new young guy that was working with Graham, Bert Newton, got the Thursday night because I'd been successful on them. And we didn't realise until later because I didn't think about it. I mean, you you don't think when you get those things about who else is doing the Tonight Show in the world? You don't think of those things. And guess who the next person was? My sister, Helen Reddy.
Who were the uh, the key influences in your childhood growing up? Oh God, television. Television, yeah, yeah. Happy so that's, Hammond. Yeah. Um, Those very early years of television. And black we, and we're white. talking the late fifties. How dare you? <laughs> so yeah, Happy Hammond. Uh, Mum created Princess Panda. For, for the which was show. Ad, ad, oh, was that Adventure Island? No, I worked no, no. on Adventure Island with right. John Michael Harrison right. and Percy Panda, who is Jack Manuel, the choreographer, um, and Sue Donovan. And I remember being head of props in those days, or certainly in the prop department, production facility that was called at Channel 2 in Melbourne. And Sue brought in this little baby in a, a basket, and I had to look after it while it was being recorded, because it was Jason Donovan. This cute little baby that never cried. Amazing. Big smile on his face and everything. Might I suppose the slug of brandy I gave him before the show went up probably helped. <laughs> you did not. You did not. No, I didn't. So, um, so th- this kid who wanted to be an actor, a big Hollywood star, it would seem that uh, the start of your career commenced in television. Um, I think my career started, if you could call it a career, with uh, meeting Virginia Paris, who was Bloody Mary in the first production of South Pacific. And I was probably, that was 1953, so I was probably three or four years old. And I fell in love with her. And she treated me uh, so well. And huge, great big open arms, this great big black negress. I mean, I just thought she was fantastic. How did you meet her? Was was Dad through, in the show? or No, 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 no. But mum, uh, my my parents, my grandparents, or my grandmother used to have the overnight parties at, at Alna Road, the house I was brought up in. This 17-room house mansion, I suppose you'd call it. Um, were, were they in the business or they were connected to... Yep. Just, yeah. That was, they had a big house, so that's had where the opening up had that, Yeah. Yep. So I met Virginia Paris when I was three or four years of age and instantly fell in love with her. And I was allowed to go and stay at her place overnight. Um, I was probably about seven at that stage. And um, at the Jollymont Apartments, and every time I go past her, I think of her now, which is now, uh, it was a hotel, what do you call it, service apartments, is now, um, you know, sold off as apartments, so it doesn't exist anymore. But I go past that building, I often look up and reflect, and she was just fantastic. And I did have a portrait of her, and it was given to me, and I said, that's not my Ginny. <laughs> and I've actually, I don't think the artist was very impressed with me at the time. Um... So I actually got rid of it many years later because I just didn't think it was a good representation of her. But it, always being exposed and, and to all these this crazy people, there's one guy that mum and dad used to refer to as Princess. His real name was Kevin. He worked at Edmunds. And what I love about my mum and dad is the fact that I was brought up in a household that had no prejudice, no colour bar. You just accepted everybody as they were at face level and you decided whether or not you liked them or not. And I was always given that choice. So it was not conditional. Fabulous way to be brought up. You're like young Patrick in Mame. Ah, well, I probably am. <laughs> so what happened to Virginia Paris? Did she? She unfortunately she died. Yeah, but of course. But did she go back to America and she work in musical theatre? And yep. Yeah. Yep. How was she? Did she do the original South Pacific? Because we had a lot of American performers come out to play the roles here, didn't it was we? The only way you could get people in to see the show. Right. You had to have imported artists. So there was Australians still that cultural cringe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, you had to have somebody of notoriety. And so also, we, frankly, we didn't have someone... Who could carry a show. Well, we didn't have a Marsha Hines then, so... Oh, right, right, right. 
you know, we have that white Australia. That, that, uh, yeah, yeah, diversity of performance. Correct. Yeah. Um, so television, how, how long were you in television? You mentioned ABC Studios in Melbourne. Yep, I used to work for them um, in production facilities and I think that's before I went to live to go to live in England. So it would have been 1969 to 1971, something like that. And yeah. you, you worked in props there? or yeah. did, was there, did you think there was going to be a career in television for you? Because it, it, I always had dreams in colour of a kid, as a kid, going to England. And I don't know if that was influenced by Dad telling me stories and yin, yin, yin. Um, and there's too many stories to tell all at one time. But um, the, the goal was to get a job that would pay me enough money by doing shift work. Unfortunately, they discovered I was very good at dressing the sets. Because not only would I fluff up the cushions, but I'd rearrange all the flowers. And that shift was probably the, uh, the killer shift the red eye special because you'd start work at two o'clock in the morning and you'd finish work at 10.30 a.m. And then the next week you'd be rostered on at 7 a.m. And unfortunately I got really sick as a result because you know, you had this, I can, I don't imagine how people flying in a Qantas jet, you know, get over it because you, you, you don't get into a routine and your sleep patterns completely. Mind you, I was only what, 19 or 20. So I go to bed after going out to a party at six o'clock in the morning and wake up at six o'clock in the evening and do it all again. Um, it was a very interesting time. It, it was um, the days of, I think, no, colour television hadn't come in then because I went to England and then I came back and colour TV had come. So everything was in black and white. I worked on shows called Sound, uh, uh, Adventure Island which was fantastic and outrageous because they'd stopped videoing it and they continued the scene on. And one of the, the funniest things toward the end of that series is that all the characters, Brian Crossley, who played Mrs. Flowerpots... Ernie Bourne was in that one? Ernie Bourne was in yeah. it. I think even... And, and my dad was on it as well with Ernie. He was... Fest, I think Fester Fumble, Fumble yeah. was one of his characters. But this on this particular thing, Diddley Dumb high street they'd all wave and go into their houses and then the camera would pull back and the gates would close well this particular thing they all came out of that, their respective houses and started stripping <laughs> <laughs> and the video camera was off and it was on it was on yes right I have no idea what happened to it but that would I just remember that being one of the very last shows I worked on and all the it was like being in an orgy. What I'd imagine being in an orgy is like. <laughs> With all these fun. fantasy characters. Yeah. What a blooper reel. So um, so you, 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 I guess you get together your funds to travel overseas because that's what everybody was doing. Absolutely. Late 60s, early 70s. Because that's where they wanted to, that's where you were, were expected to go to make your, your break. So you go by or ship. Or make your mark. And, and, and look, I also wanted to have that wonderful that experience. I'd been on a cruise and met some people and we decided that we'd, um, Lois and Rebecca and Graham and I decided we'd go to Europe together, having uh, met on this South Sea Island cruise for a month. It was fantastic. And that kindled the desire to go and live in Europe. And... That was really interesting because we went by ship. It took six weeks and one day to get to Rotterdam. And I loved every minute of it because there were parties on board and, you know, every second day you've been in a different port and different sort of language, different culture, different food. It was the most amazing experience. When you do that at 19 or 20, 
2021, of course, that, that just it, it gives you the bug for the rest of your life. And I'm still trying to cram in as many countries in, in as many weeks as I can when I've got the time and the, and the opportunity and the money. Yeah. So did you go to England wanting to be an actor still? Look, probably not by that stage. Um, I did have some photographs. I did manage to get myself to, in those days, West Berlin, having met Udo Waltz on the beach in Mykonos, along with a whole group of people. And he is, is Angela Merkel's hairdresser. Right. But he has had his own hairdressing salon. And he said, Michael, if you come to Berlin or West Berlin, um, I can get a job for you. And I said, what doing? He said, Kopfwaschung. And I said, what the hell is that? He said, washing heads of hair. Right. In this very sort of prestigious Not, not washing salon. the police force. No, 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 oh, no, no, no. Heads of hair. Yeah. And um, it was in Fasanenstrasse, or Swallow Street, I think it is in German. I can't remember. Not, not having one word of German apart from ja and nine. Um after six months of, of washing heads of hair, and but of course it was in the days where it was the uh, you had the Americans and the uh, French and um, it was a, a what's the name city you know a, a, yes one of those <laughs> I can't drink anymore <laughs> um, and what was fantastic is that I would make what they call trink gelt which are tips. And the money I made in tips, I would bank, and my salary is what I'd live on. So I was able to get back to the UK. And during this time, I met a photographer who was a friend of Udo's, and he took some shots of myself and Helen Simons, another Aussie that I was there with. And I took those shots over to England with me and went to a model agency. And uh, Jacques Say, I think was his name, and anyway, I took those shots with me and I went to see an agent there and they went, well, you know, when are you coming back to live in England? And I said, well, since you get me a job. So that was the beginning of a 27-year uh, modelling career in the UK. Amazing. So what sort of modelling did you do? Everything. Yeah. One of the, I was with Gavin L.B. Robinson in Old Bond Street and uh, mainly the, the main backbone of my income was from the catalogue business. And I earned myself a reputation of being the Littlewood, uh, Littlewood catalogue trouser model. And I could never work out why they took so long. I'm just putting a pair of jeans on me. And there's no, no face in, in shot. I have to catch a train up to Manchester and they'd house us there and da-da-da-da-da. And they would spend about an hour on this raised platform and put this pair of really awful high-waisted bell-bottom flared jeans on and put double-sided tape around the hem of the of the jean on top of these uh, built-up platforms of shoes, when I think about it. And I have to put my hand in. And, of course, you had to hold your hands up. And all the blood would eventually, after holding that position for an hour and a half, you know, you'd start to get... And you couldn't move. So I would never drink the night before. And I learnt to... Uh, also, uh, so you wouldn't have a visible panty line... I had to wear uh, a pantyhose. So <laughs> it was very strange getting ready for the shoot. And I didn't realise or appreciate at the time that, that that took so much time and effort because it was a full-page spread for this particular pair of jeans. As I say, it was only my hand and maybe my elbow in shot, but, you know, this little trim waist and these long legs, thanks to my dad. And 
those jeans were £9.99, which you could pay, uh, spend 33p a week to pay them off. Because don't forget, this is a time in England in the, uh, yeah, in the 70s where people didn't have a lot of money. And they sold over a million pairs of those jeans. So that is over £9 million from that one shot. No wonder they had me stand there for nearly three hours looking lovely because it generated so much and it had to be absolutely perfect. And this is the days before they did uh, all the um, uh, touching up, if you excuse the expression, was done by an artist with a pen and, a, and, and a, she, she would actually retouch it by hand to make them look absolutely perfect. Extraordinary. So what was it like in... Um in London at the time, pretty wild, I guess. Sensational. Yeah. In fact, I miss it because I, I try to get back there, if not once a year, every two years, because all my mates are still living there. Even though they've all moved on, we always have a model reunion with the girls that I used to work with, and we used to do all the Harrod shows and the Selfridges fashion shows, and they're all now grandmothers. Look dynamic. I mean, talk about this new generation of oldies. It's fantastic. And nothing has changed. We, we don't see each other for two years. We pick up from where we left off and we're still drinking the same drinks and talking the same crap and just love it. Were you able to uh, see much theatre and submerge yourself in, in that end of the business? Of course, yeah. yeah. As much as I possibly can. Um, it's not a, a cheap exercise. So, you know, um, so I'm fairly selective about what I go to and see. And I love seeing my musicals and, you know... I made the biggest mistake of going to see an American in Paris just recently, which is now last year. What I should have done is go to see 42nd Street. Um, and I was ill-advised. And I must say, if nothing else, just reinforce how good Australian uh, performers are and how professional they are. And this is also reinforced by a previous trip. And I was sitting next to Peter Adams and he'd managed to get the tickets from Half Ticks and we were bang in the middle, three rows from the front, and two of the chorus girls have these huge ladders in their pantyhose. The, uh, the, the, the star of the show came out doing, top hat it was, came out and uh, the role that my dad would have done, uh, he had on an evening suit, black shoes and white socks. And you go, that would never, ever happen here. No. It's that we, we have got such a high standard and good eye. Attention to detail. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages. Don't forget to investigate other Stages podcasts featuring conversations with creatives and artists about their careers, processes and what matters to them. Leading lady of the Australian stage, Geraldine Turner, reflects on the challenge and responsibility of leading a company, often on a long tour. Yeah, and there have been times in my life when I haven't come up to the... um, the place I should be in, in leading the company. I've always led the company, but you know I've been a brat sometimes too. And you know, as far my as private le- leading life, by example, or... yeah, my private life has taken over, and I've been you know quite mad. But but at times, but That's still, a, a mature, is that earlier in your career? I That's suppose so. I'm thing, certainly not that now. I'm not that person <laughs> now. But um, yeah, um, I think I've always had that ability to lead a company and I don't even know what that is what the definition of that is but I think I do have that and I I'm very much aware I'm very inclusive and 
want everyone in the cast to be great and I'm not one of those people who I'm the leading person and I don't care about anyone else and I'm not giving you a moment. You know, I can't stand those sorts of performers. Is there um, an expiry on your time in London? What, what brought you back to Australia? You seem to be having a good Mom time. Dad. Yep. Unfortunately. Parents getting older? A little older. Well, a lot older. I mean, you know, my dad was 50 when I was born. Um, Mum was 29. And they got to that stage. And I thought, look, it is time for me to repay everything they've done for me. Because yep. they went through fairly hard times. I think my dad had retired at 50. And Mum was a sole supporting person. She became the head of wardrobe at Channel 7. Uh, during that time where women weren't really treated as equals. And she had a really tough time you know, an Amiga salary and trying to look after three sons and a husband not working. So it was that was pretty hard, you know. Did Dad uh, stay performing? No, until the gardening. All right, so he did retire from Oh, yeah, business. 50. Right. In the gardening. But except for writing, you know, When Vaudeville Was King. Well, he had the time Which to is do a it. great, great memoir. So how do you find work when you get back? You've, you've had a career as a model... You're looking after your parents. You obviously need to find work. Well, I actually came into Sydney because I had no intention of moving back to Melbourne because that was, you know, I'd made my mind up living in the UK that um, it was time to move to my beloved Sydney because all my mad relatives were living here. Auntie Dickie and Uncle Herbie and Cousin Jan and um, Auntie Amy and Kira Billy. And I thought, look, Sydney's the place I want to be. I just love that city. I find it really... I'm torn between the two, obviously, because Melbourne's where I was brought up, but Sydney's my... I just... I love being here. I'm a vibrant, energetic, fabulous, crazy town. It's like London with a decent climate and, you know, a good view. So there's a a terrific sort of appeal for me and magnetism here. I I love coming back to Sydney. You now work as a company manager Mm -hmm. for big commercial musicals. How did that start? By getting off the ship, um, coming to Sydney, and I went to see my old mate John Frost, I'd grown up with in Melbourne, and he said, oh, Michael, um, what are you going to do? Are you going to still continue modelling? And I went, nah. I said, I've been running a photographic studio in London, Photolink, and booking all the models and doing all the location stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I've got into the organisational side of the business. And he said, oh, I'm looking for a company manager. And I said, oh, what's that? So that's what that kindled, well, that career, if you can call it a career. Um, and the first show I did was Googie Withers and John McCallum in High Spirit. And it just goes to show you how tightly knit the community is. Uh, the last time Norman and um, McCallum uh, Union had been was when my dad had worked with John McCallum's father in Brisbane. And Googie was, they were fantastic. I used to iron John's shirts and Googie's frocks. I would be their butler post-show and the people I met in their dressing room post-show, wherever we went from Canberra to Singapore, were ex-prime ministers, ex-presidents, people of huge social um, notoriety. And they were the most wonderful people to work. They taught me everything I really needed to know. I have to go. I, I was fortunate to tour in um, An Ideal Husband with Enough them. about you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
what what a masterclass in in acting to watch them perform every night, but also not on not only on stage but off stage as well Absolutely. the way they conducted themselves. Yeah. And I remember one glorious Saturday they celebrated their fiftieth wedding anniversary, and we had a matinee and an evening show. And I thought how poetic for you know these creatures of the theatre to be spending a life together in the theatre, but also you know performing on the day of the golden wedding. So lovely people. Did they show you the trundle beds that they had in the dressing room where they'd have a bit of To a have a nap, yeah. <laughs> Don't blame them. Oh, Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to. Um, when you're in a show, you spend a lot of your life at the theatre, so you need well, it is to have those you actually marry, You marry the job and the... Yeah. So, um, so what did John Frost tell you that a company manager does? What, what does a company manager do? I don't really know. <laughs> you still how I much? Just, how many years later? All and I do, still I walk around. Out. I do. All I do is just go around to each dressing room and insult everybody, and they laugh, and then I go home. <laughs> what does the company manager do? Everything. Uh, you represent the executive producers on site. Um, it's all the day-to-day liaising, coordinating. Um, you deal with the front of house staff, ticketing, flights, uh, accommodation, publicity, coordinating all of that. Salaries, I think I said. Um, do you want to look after the actors or is it um, basically yeah or anyone who travels with the show correct yeah crew yeah and it's great you never ever get bored because you're dealing with personalities and individuals and everybody has an individual you know requirement and need and um, you try to be firm without being abrupt I find a lot of company managers from eras before me get burnt out and um no names mentioned. And um, are you working long hours? You do work long hours, and you don't have a lunch break, and you very rarely have a meal. You know, it's not. Oh, look! I just pop upstairs for an hour and have my lovely meal break or my lunch break. It doesn't work that way because, in between shows on a two-show day, or uh, even when the show is on, people come and see you. They come and have a chat, or you know, they come in. They're getting ready for the show. I never ever go and do the rounds in the half I always do it you know an hour before and those chats are important too I guess well, just in uh, I think communicating cons- how, how they're feeling in the show and, and you being aware of all of that And I think I'm considered to be very old fashioned in fact Gal Edwards said that was one of my pluses because I do care about people and you do go around and you knock on the door and you know break a leg have a good show you know nee, nee, nee. Um, people just don't do that it's sort of like the attitude is well you're getting paid for the job get on and do it and I mean this respectfully, but you're a bit like a den mother, aren't you? You've got to How sort of, dare you? <laughs> but you've got to make sure that all the the people in your charge are happy, and mm. and if they're happy, then the show's going to be much easier to to run. The producers are going to be happier, yeah. Because you're very much middle management, aren't you? You're you're well. Look, you know, I, I do. Rep- I represent the executive producers on site, so you know I, I like to think that I always tell everybody that my door's always open. And if there is a problem, come and give me the heads up, let me know, and we'll try and, you know, solve it. Or we need to carry it on to a further level. But, you know, it's a, it's a corridor of communication that's always kept open, I think, for me. But you've got to like people. And you've also got to be incredibly patient. And it's problem solving... Which I really on, enjoy. On the, on the spot. spot. Instantly. Instantly, yeah. And then, of course, you have injuries, which is, that's a real test. Because not being a doctor, but you just have this gut feeling that it's not just... Recently, it wasn't just 
a sprained ankle, it was a broken foot. And it, yeah, you've got to, you've got to react fairly quickly. What do you enjoy most about the job? The day-to-day challenge, never get bored. Um, you're dealing with people, it's always a laugh. And I'm so fortunate now with all the years that I've been doing this crazy job that it's I'm now starting to catch up with people I've done other shows with. And it's amazing. It's just we don't see each other from year to year, maybe three years, and you pick up exactly from where you left off. It's wonderful. It, it's, it's family, and it's like family that live overseas that come home. And you're all together, you know, under this umbrella of a show, backstage, and, you know, occasionally go upstairs and have a drink afterwards or go to their place for dinner or I have them over to my place because I'm now Melbourne based and um, it's something I didn't realise that I've actually inherited from my mum and dad because they were forever entertaining show folk and once it's in your system you know I mean I remember as a little boy at three or four years of age trying to jump up and I was too small to open up the, the door handle to go through to the party which I could hear it was the most frustrating thing I don't know if that's had some sort of psychological damage as an adult by having a party or going to parties. Somebody once accused me of FOMO, fear of missing out. Well, I don't think it's fear of missing out. It's just, you know, fear of not having a drink. You just want to be part of the, uh, of part of the fun. So what's the toughest part of being a company manager? God, what is the toughest part? Because I'm sure you're exposed to all sorts of tantrums and demands from difficult... Correct personnel and that's not the toughest part I think it's uh, I can only think of sort of certain experiences when someone's uh, relative has died and I've found out and I have to impart that information Um, there was a situation um, well, Ernie Bourne had died, and Sally and I were working together on Shane Warne the musical. And she insisted on going on that night. Her father had died that, that afternoon, and she insisted on going on that night. Nothing but huge respect for, for someone. To do that, to be that dedicated and that focused. And that uh, attitude would have been in her DNA, because Ernie totally. being an old Vaudevillian and in the theatre all his life... And great mates with Charlie. That's exactly what he would have wanted her to do. And one thing that makes me laugh is that Dad and Ernie would go out to the old folks' home and they had a routine and they had cozies and they'd do a, a mini vaudeville act for about 15 or 20 minutes, as Dad used to say, for the old people. And my father was in his late 80s. <laughs> and the people they were performing in front would have been in their 60s. So it was that attitude and that sort of focus that, you know, amazing. That energy right up to the end, amazing. Do you think the industry's changed in the last 20 years? It has. Very much. In what way? It's become a lot tougher. Uh, I think the care factor... Tougher to get a gig or...? Tougher to get a gig, tougher attitudes. Um, I don't think the care factor is as high as it used to be. From... From performers, producers, many of the the stakeholders, I guess, in all of the above. in a big commercial. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that the, the, the camaraderie, the it's it's become very 
it's not like being a family anymore. It's really moved on. It's all about me. Not everybody. No. Uh, I think people are very driven, very passionate. You have to be. Does te- it, has technology played a part in that? I think no. social media and, and all, all that? No, that really. No? no. Different generations. I mean, I'm at the end of my career, believe it or not. Do, uh, do performers have the same stamina as, as they did I think a couple of decades so. ago? Yeah. But you've got to be incredibly resilient. Yeah. I think the competition factor is much, much stronger. You know, you've got to be really driven. And as my mum and dad said to me, if I want to continue being in the acting field, I have to have a solid career behind me. Now, that was back in the 60s. And well, you know, 50 years on, 60 years on, wow. So I try and encourage everybody, you know, they ask me for advice, is you know, get a solid education behind you and some form of um, job that you're able to multitask. Because there, mu- there must be times when a company manager gig isn't there. Oh, correct. It's becoming less do, and less now. Do you go back to modelling? Do you? Yeah. You do. So you're still modelling. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. I love it. I like being yeah. somebody else, you know. Yeah. Right. How do you unwind? Very easily. <laughs> Catching a tram home <laughs> helps when you deal with that sort of That pressure of all day, yeah. Yeah. And I guess your love of travel sort of well, helps I, you I recharge. And, I now balance because I now work for the production company out of Melbourne. We do three shows a year. Um, I absolutely submerge myself in work for seven weeks. I then have five or six or seven weeks off. I then come back and do show number two. And that could be for eight weeks, maybe nine weeks. And I have a similar amount of time off. So I pop on the plane and go back to my beloved Greece. Recharge the batteries, come back and wham into number three. So I know what I'm doing right up to the 18th of November this year. Because I am an organised person, I can't help. I've inherited that from my mum, who was an equally well organised person. Because she was not a, a, an actress, and I, I mean, everyone wants to call her a female actor, an actor. But you couldn't with my mum. She not at 92. I would never tell her she was an actor. Not with that deep voice, darling. <laughs> she would, yeah, be a little upset. Um, she was an actress. She was definitely an actress. Right. Train of good. No, that's good. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Peter. That was horrific. Horrific. Horrific or terrific? Terrific. Michael is currently the company manager in the season of concert musicals presented by the production company at the Victorian Arts Centre in Melbourne. And he continues to find time for travel as often as he can. Mm-hmm.